You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. This morning's text is, is one of those texts that we look at, I think, as, as Christians who probably spend most of our devotional time in the New Testament, and then we go to Exodus chapter 24, and we see Moses sprinkling blood all over the people of Israel, and then him taking 70 elders to the top of the mountain to have this miraculous feast at the feet of the Lord, where it says that they saw God himself. And we say, that is just too weird for me, or that's just too miraculous for me. There's, there's nothing for me to really learn from this. This doesn't apply to my life. And, and as we jump into it this morning, I just I want to say that, that this text has so much to say about who we are. It has so much to say about what we are called to do. It has so much to say about ultimately what Jesus has accomplished for us. And what I would encourage you to engage with is that that by the end of this sermon, my hope is that you would look at the feast that Moses and the 70 elders have on Mount Sinai where they're beholding the Lord and the Lord himself is feasting with them and providing food for them. And you would say, that is nothing in comparison to what we get to do on a Sunday morning as the redeemed people of God. I'm saying this morning that I believe that what is happening here this morning is more miraculous than what happened on Mount Sinai. And so with that in mind, let's jump in. The people of Israel are coming, they're they're in the wilderness, they've been delivered from slavery in Egypt through the blood sacrifice of the Passover lamb, they've been led miraculously away from danger and death as God parted the Red Sea for them to pass through on dry land. And and now that they're in the wilderness, back in Exodus chapter 19, God told Moses to tell the people who he wanted them to be now that he had saved them from slavery. And he told them he wanted them to be an obedient people. But even more than that, he wanted Israel to be his treasured people. Of all the things in all of his creation, of all the things that God created, he wanted the people he had redeemed from slavery to be his treasure. And as his treasure, he told them that they should be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And last week, we talked about what it meant for God's people to be a holy nation as God gave Moses Ten Commandments and the ordinances that followed in the following chapters, giving them a moral law, teaching them what it was to be holy and set apart, to be morally different than the world around them. And likewise, we as a church are called to be a holy people. We should live with love of God and love of neighbor in mind in such a way that we are markedly different from those who do not yet know God through Christ. We're called to live differently, to be holy, to be obedient, to have reverence for God and love for our neighbor that surpasses love for our own desires. While the world around us is concerned with with getting more, or maybe often the world around us is concerned with some level of love for neighbor, but what we would see is that the world is really bad at loving their neighbor. 
Though they might have intentions that seem good, what we see is war and, and violence and division. We see selfishness and stealing, and the church is called to be different. But God did not want his people only to be holy. He wanted them to be a holy kingdom of priests. And to know what that means, we first have to know what it means to be a priest. What do priests do? Well, fundamentally, priests in the Bible are representatives of God's people. And they're representatives of all people. And they pray and worship and give offerings and make sacrifices to God on behalf of the people in order that the people they represent might have right relationship with God that they might experience the blessings of His covenant grace, that they might experience His forgiveness and His love and unity with Him in relationship. And so in Exodus 24, what we see is the beginning of about seven chapters in which God begins to teach Israel what it means to be a kingdom of priests. What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Well, let's read verses 1 through 8. In chapter 24, the Lord says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Now Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. This is Moses giving the people the moral law, the Ten Commandments and ordinances that he was just given. He's giving the people all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice. They said, all the words of the Lord that he has spoken, we will do. So God has given his people a moral law, and his people have, have committed to following it. And then Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood from those offerings and he put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, the Ten Commandments and the ordinances, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, once again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, the blood that he had set aside in the basin, and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what we see here is God using Moses to be a high priest for the people of Israel to consecrate them, meaning to set them apart with a purpose in mind Consecrating them as priests, as priests according to the covenant of the law that God has given them. And how does he consecrate them? He binds them to the promises of God through blood sacrifice. 
He binds the people to the promise of, of God through blood sacrifice, like the blood sacrifice that was made for them in Egypt to save them from judgment on the night of Passover, or like the sacrifices he's making today. He binds them with blood sacrifice, sacrifice that sets them apart as a holy people. See, God desires for his people to be holy to obey in all things, but knowing that they won't obey in all things and that they haven't obeyed in all things, he provides sacrifice that he might still look upon them as holy, forgiving them of their sins. And Moses does something strange here. He divides some of the blood. Half the blood goes into these basins and half of it he throws upon this altar that he's built that represents all the people of Israel. And then he takes the blood that he put in the basins and he sprinkles all the people with the blood. I mean, can you imagine sitting here and I just have a basin of blood and I just start sprinkling all of you with it? But, but what is it that Moses is doing? He's uniting the people through the sacrifice that God has provided for them to the altar. Some of the blood for them and some for the altar. Which means that God is uniting the people of Israel to the altar because they will not only be a holy people, but they will be a people of the altar, serving as priests. He's uniting them to their new profession as priests in the world who will make sacrifice on behalf of others, who will offer prayers and peace offerings on behalf of others, who will worship the Lord on behalf of others. So with the covenant sealed through the people being covered by the blood of the covenant, we're now going to get an even closer look at what God's people's identity is going to be as a people of priests, a kingdom of priests. Beginning in verse 9, the text says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. They're moving up. Mount Sinai, with the people at the base of the mountain, the Moses and the elders begin to move up Mount Sinai, and they see the God of Israel. They behold Him with their eyes, and there was under His feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, and He did not lay His hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. And they beheld God, and they ate and drank. They're going up Mount Sinai, and, and if you have been with us through the book of Exodus, you know that Mount Sinai is a place where amazing things happen. Mount Sinai is where God originally called Moses to redeem his people through a burning bush. Mount Sinai is very recently in Exodus where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the ordinances. And all throughout the Bible, mountains are places where God reveals himself powerfully to his people. 
recently the people of Israel have been standing at the base of Mount Sinai, seeing it covered with a glory cloud, and there's thunder and lightning and the appearance of fire on Mount Sinai. And so they're going up to this place that is surely awe-inspiring and a little terrifying. And as they go up, Moses and the 70 elders, they behold God, they see him, and they feast at his feet. And he doesn't lay a hand on them. He doesn't hurt them because they've been covered by the blood of the covenant. He doesn't lay a hand on them. Rather, he feeds them and nourishes them. And we may be wondering, why does Moses take these 70 elders? Why did God have Moses take 70 elders up the mountain with him? And and before we get into that, I just want us to think back to Genesis chapter 12. In chapter 15, when God gives his covenant to Abraham, he makes covenant with this man named Abraham, and he tells Abraham that I'm going to give you offspring so many that you can't number, and they are going to be a great nation. And not only are they going to be a great nation, but they're going to be a great nation that blesses all the nations of the earth. And that offspring nation is is Israel, it's these people. So God has redeemed the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He's bound them continually to this covenant that he's made with Abraham, revealing himself more and more, even now through a covenant of the law, through consecration as priests. This relationship is getting deeper and stronger, and and the intimacy with God is growing. But for what purpose? To be a nation that will bless all the nations of the earth. Now, if we looked at the appearance of the number 70 throughout the Bible, what we would see is that it's often associated with the nations. The number 70 represents the nations. And it represents the nations in such a way that when we see the number 70, usually it's a drawing together of the nations or a dispersing the people to the nations. God is saying something powerful in inviting Moses to bring 70 representatives of the people to feast with him on a mountain. And it's because God has always intended, he has always intended to reveal himself in his glory and in his power, not only to one nation, but to all the nations. So in inviting 70 elders to feast with him on the mountain, God is promising these elders and Moses and the people of Israel that I am going to use you to invite all the nations to come and feast at my table. God desires for all the nations to come and feast at his table to be covered by the blood of the covenant so that he doesn't have to lay a hand of wrath and judgment upon them so that he can feed them and nourish them and sustain them and bless them and call them his treasured possession. And after this meal, what we'll see is more and more unfolding of how God is going to use Israel to be a kingdom of priests. They're going to build a tabernacle or a tent where God will dwell with them. And eventually they'll build a temple where God will dwell. And they will serve as a kingdom of priests 
the tabernacle and the temple, offering sacrifices not only on behalf of one another, but on behalf of the nations, and offering prayer not only for themselves, but for the nations. And they're building a house of prayer and worship for the nations to come. But what we see throughout the story of the people of Israel is that they are to be God's son, but they're constantly rebellious. God called them to be a holy nation and as such a kingdom of priests, but what we see is that Israel is often unholy and that the priesthood becomes corrupt. And as such, they were unable to fully bless the nations, to fully invite the nations to come and feast at Yahweh's table. Israel was an unfaithful son, so God provided in Jesus Christ a faithful son to serve as the high priest of all high priests, to serve as the holy one among a kingdom of holy ones, to fully obey, to fully offer sacrifice, to fully deal with sin and make pleas and petition on behalf of the nations. And even now, church, we have a table here that the Lord has prepared that all the nations can come and feast at through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. See, through Jesus' sacrifice, we as the church have been sprinkled, consecrated by His blood to be set apart as a holy kingdom of priests that we might invite the nations to come and feast at Yahweh's table. What we see in Exodus chapter 24 is a liturgy of sorts, a liturgy much like what we have every Sunday at a Sunday gathering. The people approach the Lord, and and they proclaim their commitment to His promises. They confess their sin and are covered by His blood, and then they ascend in worship where He provides for them His Word. And a feast. Church, every Sunday, this thing that we look at in Exodus chapter 4, that 24, that seems so miraculous, God is inviting us to ascend his mountain to feast with him. Every week. And if we think of the Sunday gathering as anything less than God inviting his people covered by his covenant blood to come and feast with him where he won't lay a hand of judgment upon us but will treasure us as his people. If we think of the Sunday gathering as anything less than that, we will fail in our ministry as priests. And we'll miss out. We'll miss out on beholding the Lord and allowing Him to feed us and sustain us. See, on the mountain, the Moses and the elders, it says that they saw God. And that, that there was under His feet a pavement of sapphire stone. Now, I looked throughout the Bible to find occasions where sapphire is mentioned, and And the most primary ones are in the book of Ezekiel where the prophet Ezekiel talks about one day there being a God-like man who would come and be king of all the nations and his throne in the book of Ezekiel is made of sapphire. 
Church, I'm convinced that Moses and the elders did not just supernaturally kind of have this vision of the Lord. I'm convinced that Jesus was on the mountain feeding them and showing them that today you eat a feast that is preparing for what I will one day fulfill. Today you represent the nations at the table, but one day I will fill the table truly with the nations. See, church, every week we have a feast because God has chosen to feed us, but also because eternity is a feast at the feet of Jesus. It's a feast at the feet of Jesus in which God has invited all who would cover themselves in the covenant blood of His Son, able to remove sin and debt and guilt and shame and sorrow, that all who would cover themselves in the blood of the Son would come and feast with God forever. So weekly we ascend Mount Sinai together, finding its climax in the meal, But then we descend every week back into the wilderness. Why? Because we are a kingdom of priests. And we have a job to proclaim the good news that Yahweh has invited our neighbors to his feast. That through his son, God has made a way that all of our family members and co-workers and friends and neighbors who seem so far from God, whose lives seem so broken, that in his son, he has provided blood that would allow them to come and feast with him forever. And this is the whole point of the neighborhood parish gathering, that we have a feast where we invite the nations to come and join us so that we can talk about the grace that God has for them. This is why we're committed to making disciples and building relationships with people and exposing them to gospel community and sharing the good news that the life, death, resurrection, and person of Jesus are all that we need to have hope and security and steadfastness and joy, not only now but forever. We do these things because Yahweh is going to have a wedding feast and all the nations are invited not only to attend, but to be his bride, his treasured possession. And so next Sunday when we come to pray and to sing songs and hear the word of God proclaimed, let us not just think of the Sunday gathering as something that we do because we're Christians. Let us not think of it as something that we do because it makes us feel good. Let us come because God has invited us to ascend his mountain and feast with him. He's invited us to come and receive his word spoken. That we might have hope and knowledge of what it means to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And let us come inviting the nations to feast with us. And let us leave this Sunday gathering, descending the mountain into the wilderness, prepared to proclaim the good news that Yahweh is having a feast. And that all who would hope in the blood of Jesus are invited. And if you're in the room this morning and you've yet to put your hope in the Lord, if you've yet to see the excellencies of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, 
as, as the only means of giving you not only eternal life, but fullness of life today, I would invite you this morning to consider that God is having a feast and that He wants you to be there. He wants you to put your hope in the covenant blood that He's provided for you, to bind you to Himself, that you might too be part of a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, inviting others to this feast. But this morning, if you've yet to put your hope in Him, I would invite you to do so. And when we come to the table, I would invite you to come too. Would you cover yourself in the blood of Jesus, and then would you drink it as your sustenance? Would you put your hope in the broken body of Christ, and then feast upon it as your victory? Let's pray. Father, we proclaim that you, your Son, and your Spirit are worthy of all of our praise. We proclaim that you are worthy of all the names that are glorious that have been ascribed to you. We put our full hope in you and we pray that by your spirit, week after week, we would come and not just come as those who are are coming to a Sunday gathering, but that we would come prepared as priests to ascend your mountain to feast with you and to be prepared to invite more and more people to that feast. I pray that, Lord, you would stir up revival in our neighborhood parishes and in our congregation that more people in Montrose would know that you are having a feast and that they're invited, would know that you have provided a way for assurance and forgiveness and pardon and grace and hope everlasting. And when we come to this meal this morning, would we not think of it as a simple piece of bread and a sip of wine or juice? But would we imagine one day seeing you robed in glory Sapphire and every precious stone surrounding you, inviting us to an eternal feast where there are no more tears, where there is no more sorrow, where no more do we fail to love you or our neighbors as well as we are called to, but where you and your glory and the promises you have made reign forevermore. And would we be astonished in that day of how many people of the nations you have invited to that feast. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.